How connected do you feel to your neighborhood? When you head out in the morning, who are the people that you notice walking with you? When you come home at night, what are the landmarks that you pass that really make your neighborhood unique? Each and every one of us lives in a neighborhood, but just because we live in a neighborhood doesn't necessarily mean that we feel like we're a part of that neighborhood. And that's the question that we're going to explore in this episode. How do you find your place in the place that you live? We're joined by two guests, Jay, who's an arts activist living in the southeast of Washington, D.C., and Kate, who is a young professional living in the northwest part of this city. Solidarity is more than just name. It's the radical idea that every story holds profound spiritual truth about the world we share. In each episode, we invite diverse and creative guests to reflect on the most important questions of our lives. So whether you're listening on your morning commute, your lunch break, or late at night, whether you're religious, spiritual, or just passionate about living a good life, we're glad to have you with us in solidarity. All right, so we're talking about neighborhoods this episode, and uh, you know, most of you listening to the show are probably familiar with Washington, D.C., since that's where the sanctuaries is based. Uh, but for those of you that don't know, let me just give you uh, the quick and dirty about D.C. So many of you may know D.C. as Chocolate City because it's been historically black. Uh, well, a lot of things are changing in the city, as a lot of you may also know. Uh, you have the northwestern part of the city, which includes areas like DuPont Circle, U Street, and Columbia Heights, uh, which is inhabited by a lot of transient and affluent people uh, that come to the city for various different reasons. Then you have southeast, or east of the river, that a lot of people uh, in this area are familiar with, but don't really talk about because of its reputation for high crime and a whole host of other issues that aren't really pleasant to think about. Now, our first guest, Jason, gave us a little bit more into that because he is a southeast resident and also does a lot of community activism in the area. Well, southeast, for one, wasn't always a part of D.C. It was Maryland. And so it has a very... Uh, different aesthetic than the rest of the city. Like you'll see a lot of parks, a lot of grass, a lot of trees, a lot of space in between houses or developments per se. So I think Anacostia is aesthetically different from the rest of the city first and foremost. Um, but second, being as though uh, we're in Ward 8, um, historically it has been the poorest section of the city. So we've had the highest unemployment, we've had the highest murder, we've had the highest high school dropout. So we're dealing with a lot of issues that the rest of the city may not be dealing with at the same degree. I mean, because we're dealing with it all over the city, but Anacostia in particular, being the, the, you know, the poorest section of the city, has a lot of its um, uh, contradictions highlighted. Given those contradictions, we wanted to hear what stood out for him about his neighborhood from his childhood. Growing up, the, the thing that I noticed, because it was a bad reputation, you know, 80s and 90s, Southeast D.C., you, you get your head rocked, you know, and it was true. But that's not a testament to the people. It's a testament to the conditions that the people were forced um, to cultivate in. And But through that, what I've learned about my community as a child is that there's a lot of love in these types of communities, whereas though the news will show you the murder and the drugs, but it's like I've never seen or met 
stronger people that have endured. You know, since it's like a love, it's a different love. It's not the you know because warm uh, uh, love has many layers. Love can make you hate somebody, make you kill somebody, make you hug somebody, make you punch somebody in the face. But love causes all those things. It's not just one set thing. So, I guess the distinct thing about Anacostia that I I think uh, has the same thread from a child until now as an adult is that the love of the people is so strong, but it'll never be discussed in any type of media or, you know, but it's, it's definitely the love of the people. Yeah. So love, love in the hood is actually a beautiful thing. And I wanted to know more about it. So, you know, I told him to give us an example. Like, cause it is an example. My homeboy was telling me about yesterday. It was these two dudes fighting. Like, over something stupid, like, but they were, like, fighting, fighting, fighting. I guess, you know, and it's funny because people in the hoods, like, they don't work out and ain't in shape. So it's like they just think they can up and fight for 30 minutes. And so one dude just started throwing up and was like, uh, and, and dudes just came. They didn't even know the dude, but they just came, helped him, pat him on his back. Like, you all right, cuz? Like, you know, but that's love. They were, And these was like, dudes, you, you know, they tatted up. Like, you know, they probably got guns and shit on them, coke. But it's like they stopped and helped this brother because <laughs> he was throwing up because he was fighting. They, they held the other dude off like, hold up, cuz, hold up. He's throwing up. So they, he was bent over. They patting him on his back. And, you know, it's like you wouldn't expect that from like three 20-something black dudes with tattoos and pants sagging. It's like, but they stopped what they was doing, saw this brother was throwing up, stopped the other dude from whooping him, pat him on his back till he got himself together. You know, so it's just, you know, but you would never hear about a story about that. You know what I'm saying? But to me, that was love. All right. So when Jason mentioned the love, I was totally feeling him because, you know, I, I live in Southeast as well. And I've lived there for the past two and a half years. And I'm from Silver Spring. So when I tell people I live in Southeast, they always question me, like, how do I like living there as if I'm supposed to say I hate it or something? And it's not always clear why I like it there. And, and, and it wasn't until he said that is when I realized I do appreciate the love as well. So that prompted me to ask him you know, about the things that make him feel comfortable there versus what makes him feel uncomfortable? Uh, uh, parallel struggles. Like when I walk through the streets, I kind of know most of the people are living a life similar to me. So that makes me comfortable. Um, I guess what makes me feel uncomfortable is that we don't control any of the resources in my community. And, and, and it irks me. It makes me feel very uncomfortable and very vulnerable. Um, because I, we have to rely on people who have not historically treated us justly. Hearing Jay talk about the discomfort that he feels with the people who are currently serving his community prompted me to ask him what is motivating him to step up himself to serve his neighborhood better. It's a lot of selfishness. Really, because I feel connected to my community. So if my community ain't doing well, I ain't doing well. So that is my motivation to get my community well. It's kind of, it's, it's like, it's a selfish kind of, but it's, it's selfish and unselfish simultaneously. It's because I think uh, the, the contradiction is that most people don't feel connected to the rest of their community. Like a lot of people, in the, the elders in the neighborhood just talk bad about the youngest, but like, these are kids. Like, they're not those kids. These are our kids. Like, 
we when we walk to the store, they're going to be the ones surrounded. So it's like you better get some type of relationship with them, or you know what I'm saying, as opposed to just talking back because they big. Like these these 14, 15 year old boy, they six two, two thirty. Like I want to know them. You know what I'm saying? It's like, so it's like, yeah, I'm going to do what I can to cultivate their minds, their bodies, their spirits. I'm trying to instill, uh, um, you know, adult thinking and in, into them because, like, yes, they're in my community and I want my overall community to be better. So I am invested in everybody in my community because so, that's going to help me. Jay is really passionate and enthusiastic about serving his community. And with all of the struggles that he has to face, I asked him, what is the most powerful and effective weapon that he has in doing that? Subjectively speaking, I think art is the answer. I think, you know, um, a, lot of, a lot of people that I've studied with over the years believe this armed struggle or political power or economic power that will force balance in government or just in on the earth in general subjectively speaking i think it's the arts i think the arts are the most powerful weapon that exists on the earth um you know because you can sing a song and hate it but it'll be in your mind it'll be in your spirit and there's nothing you can do about it it's in you because i sing songs i hate all the time i gotta catch myself i hate that song but that's the like art is powerful like I, I remember at one point in my life I was heavily involved with doing like you know like like movement work like being in the streets and like grassroots like leaflets and blah 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 and I kind of given up on the art and uh, uh, one of my mentors is, is a brother named Haile Garima he's a film director he directed the movie Sankofa and he pulled me to the side and he was like look like you don't understand he was like art is just as important as doing this work. He's like, you can't leave the art. He's like, you can't, you can't change anything without art. Every great takeover, per se, had some type of music. Whenever there's a war, they blowing horns, they doing drums, there's some type of music, you know, there's some type of, you know, art involved. And, and he was like, no, the art is the trenches. And it's more powerful and probably more effective than actually being out there on the street because the art can reach people who don't want to be reached. As someone so immersed in the artistic side of his neighborhood, I wanted to hear how he understands his neighborhood from a spiritual perspective. Right now, currently, it's dormant. It's alive, it's just sleep. The highest degree of spirituality in the hood is with the thug dudes. Like that's where the spirituality lies. And that's why no one can find it because it's it's harnessed up into these dudes and and they hide it. And so it's like you know they'll 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 harness it like and cover it with like tattoos. And when I was about twenty years old, I had gone to maybe sixty funerals at that point. And these aren't like distant people like oh you heard about such and such. These were people I knew personally. So it made me wonder like damn are we really just killers like are we really stupid like savages like like I've been taught by the media and 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 so I started to like I guess assess people like in my community to kind of see if it was true like are you really just a brute animal that should be in a cage and then you know as I started doing my evaluation of my community it's like nah these these are kings and queens like 
they strong and smart and like pretty and you know they all these things that I'm like something's wrong like somebody is lying like somebody's lying because these are the most amazing people I've ever seen and met in my travels and it's like they don't have a lot of money so it forces you know people to do different things to survive and you have to lie because I remember uh Years back, that show Oz that was on HBO. You remember the white character, little nerdy dude that got locked up, but he had to change and he became like a rough. But you know, he was like small, had the glasses with the nerd, but he got, you know, he got roughed so many times. He was forced to kind of create this just to survive. It's not him, that ain't really him, but his surroundings forced him to create this persona so that he can survive. But it's not truly him. So it's that's the same scenario with the with with the folks in our communities. It's not really them. Like the little the swag and the talking back and like trying to act hard. That's not them for real. Because in the schools, you can see it. You can see when they cry. You can see like when their mother go to the hospital. Like they be crying and you know you you can see the 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 human elements in, in these kids. When, when, when their mask is down. And I'm like, oh, like you care about your grandmother just like everybody else does. And like, that's how I know that's where it's hidden because they're scared to let it out. Jay does a really good job of highlighting the importance of young people in any community, neighborhood, or village. So I wanted to know more about his vision for his community and what he sees coming for his neighborhood. I don't think, and this is subjective also, I don't really think Anybody else on earth has to deal with the same um, um, selective strategy of, of destabilizing than American black men, even more so than black men on the continent or black men in South America or wherever else we're oppressed. I think specifically it's the, the strongest resources to to snatch the minds and spirits have been targeted towards American black men because American black men are in the belly of the beast. And if there was ever some type of enlightening or awakening with the black men in this country in particular, and honestly, in this city in particular, I think that spiritual movement would shake the earth. Our second guest is Kate, who, like so many other young professionals, moved to Washington, D.C. to further her career and pursue her passion for international development. And we wanted to ask her about the neighborhood where she lives on the northwest side of the city. Um, so I live in Mount Pleasant, which I always thought was kind of a funny name. <laughs> um, I'll back up a little bit and say that I've only lived in D.C. one other time, and I lived in a very different neighborhood. Um, but now I live on a very long uh, tree-lined street, uh, sort of at the crossroads of Mount Pleasant, Adams Morgan, and Columbia Heights. It's kind of how I would describe it. Um, and consequently, I think my neighborhood sort of has three pieces. One piece is the sort of, I guess it would be El Salvadorian community. Um, the sort of families who are in Mount Pleasant 
uh, who t I think are sort of on the wealthier side and own some nice homes. And then I would sort of say with a scrappy 20-something, young 30-something who are all living in group houses and commute into downtown uh, in, you know, in business attire. Um, and I'm sure there are other groups and pockets of people, but I sort of think about uh, the Mount Pleasant area being sort of at that crossroads. So as we cross the bridge to another part of D.C., we ask Kate her experiences and if she feels connected to the neighborhood that she lives in. I think something that's funny about D.C. is ultimately D.C. comes down to your individual experience. So many people are running through the city. It's, it's hard to really feel like you're part of one city, um, which is why the neighborhood uh, soul is really important. Um, I think what... I think I sort of consider myself more of an observer of the neighborhood rather than a member. Um, and I think maybe other people in D.C. have a similar situation when they feel like they may not be, be here a very long time. So in light of that transience being such an uh, important central part of Kate's experience of this city as well as the experience of many other people in this city, I wanted to hear how she's able to kind of feel at home in her neighborhood, especially when there's so many people moving around in and through her neighborhood all the time. I sort of acknowledge feeling at home when people around me recognize me. Um, so there's a local uh, coffee shop near my house that I was going to pretty regularly and I started to recognize the staff and I think they started to recognize me and I eventually had a, a regular order that they knew which was really cool just like the movies <laughs> um, and I think that, that that sort of reminded me of other places where I've lived where it's, it's the moment when people who share your neighborhood recognize you and you sort of become a part of their day um, and that, that was a really important part of how I felt at home when I was living overseas um, in a more permanent fashion, like when I was in Morocco with the Peace Corps. When I moved to Morocco, I was uh, placed in a very small, uh, well, it's not very small. I should say it's a medium-sized commuter town at the time. It's now much bigger. And I remember going, I think I had just come back from traveling within Morocco um, on Peace Corps business. and. I was going to buy something. I, I, let's say it was butter. I actually don't remember what it was, but I was going to buy some butter. And I remember having a conversation with the fellow who owns the store where um, he asked me where I had been. And I, I mentioned that I had been, you know, away traveling. And he said, oh, well, you know, and th I think the way he phrased it in Arabic was, was something to the effect of, you know, you... Like, your place was vacant in our neighborhood, and that's how I knew you were, you were gone. Um, and that, to me, was sort of a... That was a moment when I, it was acknowledged that I had sort of become part of my neighborhood fabric, which was really cool. That sense of belonging is very important, and a lot of us seek it in our lives. And as a matter of fact, it's in the middle of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So we asked Kate, what does it take to get to that point? I, I don't think it necessarily has to be that people uh, speak to you or necessarily you know invite you over to their house for dinner or anything like that I think it's even just sort of those silent moments of acknowledgement that this is your space too and that they um, want you to be part of the space that I think that is is a really important way that neighborhoods form and um, also allow people to get those little signals in their lives to kind of you know punctuate their lives of 
this is my my neighborhood these people not know who I am but they acknowledge me and that I'm important I'm a piece of their everyday life one of the things that's so unique about Kate is her experience of having more than one neighborhood that she can call home. And so circling back to her experience living abroad over in Morocco, we wanted to know about where she saw spirituality and religion playing into her everyday life in that neighborhood. Uh, Something you have to get used to is the call to prayer in the morning. And I remember the first couple mornings that I was living in Morocco, I think the first one I was very jet-lagged, but the, by the time I was not jet-lagged, um, it, was, it was really difficult for me to sleep through the, the morning call to prayer. Um, and I, I, every time I would change houses, I would kind of go through this sort of need to readapt and sort of not wake up in the middle, not the middle of the night, but very, very early in the morning at sunrise. Um, And that was a really important, it's a very important feature of everyday life in Morocco. The the ladan, like the call to prayer, is a huge, huge part of life there. Um, And, you know, it it sets when people uh, are home for meals. It's it's a a really important structure to the day. And um, as a newcomer into that, into that community, it was, it was almost like, what was that part of, life going to mean to me (laughs) I'm not Muslim so that that was kind of interesting to sort of you know it's funny how sound is such a important part of your day-to-day life and um, I think initially to to feel like you're there were you know a few moments five moments in your day when your sort of space of sound was being crowded by very large uh, beautiful but very powerful loud um calls to God and I think ultimately for me I I learned to embrace it I, I learned that that was something I really love it it's it's a very um, almost chilling sound at certain moments in the day that kind of you know it sort of snaps you out of what you're doing and reminds you that there are other things in life to think about if, if, if you're not religious like me it could be anything as you know remembering to to think about what you're grateful about or you know things that are it could mean anything but it's just something that kind of snaps you out of what you're doing at a regular interval and reminds you of, of where you are and to me I always felt like I was a guest in Morocco and so to, to hear the call to prayer sort of created that in some ways it created a division but it created a respectful division where I sort of remembered again that I was a guest in the country. I enjoyed Kate's expression of gratitude for having that time in the middle of the day or at various times during the day to think about what she's appreciative for, Uh, whether it's a call to prayer, a siesta, or even a lunch break. uh, I really like how she pointed that out. Uh, There's always opportunity to think about something different. And so we asked her to close up with her thoughts on what she feels about the place she calls home. I think the expression that best... Uh, describes how I feel towards my neighborhood is home is where the heart is Um, and I say that because I think I belong to several different neighborhoods um, here and overseas and to me it is ultimately the people in those neighborhoods that uh, make me feel at home and make me feel like I still have membership in these neighborhoods. Uh, 
we had very great word from both of our guests, and I'm appreciative that they came on the show and shared their experiences of what neighborhood means to them. What I took from that is the probability does not necessarily determine the possibility of having a pleasant experience in whatever neighborhood that you live in. Now, Jason's experience in Southeast DC is highly probable that he wouldn't have survived this long. Uh, a lot of you know the life expectancy for a black male in the United States is anywhere from 21 to 25 years of age, which a lot of people can't fathom. But Jason has defied those probabilities and experienced the possibility of a good, wholesome life in which he's engaged in his community, in the arts, and providing a better life for his family. Similarly, the same thing I feel can be said about Kate, in which the probability of an American non-religious woman uh, going to an African Muslim country uh, could be very unpleasant. And uh, she was able to defy those odds and experience the possibility of feeling welcomed and feeling like a neighbor. These two stories, I think, share a lot of similarities and could possibly be the case for you, uh, especially when we take the time to realize what's around us and pay attention to the details and unique characteristics of our neighborhood. I couldn't agree more with you, Osa. And at the same time, I'm struck in so many ways by how different Jay and Kate's accounts were of Washington, D.C., as we often talk a lot about gentrification and the changing faces of the city, it's no wonder listening to both of their accounts that there might be some real tension given how different their experiences of the city are and by extension the different visions that they may have of what a neighborhood should look like and what it means to be a neighbor. Of course, we didn't get the chance to ask them directly about their views on some of those more contentious topics. But one of the things that I will pull out of both of their accounts is that piece around intention. I feel like that may be one of the horizontals that cuts across the many vertical divisions that we have in terms of where we live in this city. That both of them, in their own unique way, were very intentional about paying attention. They paid attention to the other neighbors in their neighborhood. They paid attention to the needs and concerns and real-life experiences of the other people in their neighborhood. They paid attention to how they themselves were being received, whether they were being noticed, and by extension, what they could do to help their neighborhoods. And perhaps that's a lesson for each and every one of us to ask ourselves, are you being intentional about paying attention? Are you being intentional about being a good neighbor? Solidarity is created by The Sanctuary, a diverse arts community with soul, located in Washington, D.C. If you live in our nation's capital or if you're traveling to the area, come join us and meet some of the people behind the voices you hear. You can find all of our upcoming events as well as information about getting involved in our community on our website at thesanctuaries.org.